This is episode 105 of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. A few weeks ago, I was reading the comments on an article at AA Beyond Belief, and I ran across a post from Stephanie R. It was a link to a YouTube video of a talk she gave at the Wilson House. She was speaking as an open atheist about the big book and the steps, and I thought she gave an excellent presentation. Then I went and visited her YouTube channel, and I found even more videos of talks she's given at various places, and I thought to myself, wow, she's really talented. I've got to have her on a podcast. So I wrote her that day, and she agreed, and now we're posting that discussion. So if you're an atheist or an agnostic and interested in the 12 steps and how to make sense of them, then this episode is for you. Well, hello. I'm here with Steph R. And Steph, where are you from? Um, I am from New York, New York. I live in Amityville, New York now, but I spent 35 years in New York City on the Upper East Side. So I learned about you through our website, A Beyond Belief, and you posted a link to a YouTube video there, and I went and I listened to it. And what it was, it was an audio recording of a talk you gave at the Wilson House, and you were going through the big book, and and the particular um, audio that I listened to covered like the first three steps. And I thought, as an atheist, I thought, wow, this is really cool. And it reminded me so much of myself and how I view the steps in the big book. And I said, I really need to have her on a podcast and learn more about her. So thank you for agreeing to do this. Well, thank you so much for asking me. It was it was humbling. I've never done anything like this. And, it, you know, it felt really good to be asked. So yeah. thank you. Yeah. So can we begin with you kind of giving us a little bit of your background about your recovery and what brought you to where you're at today? Sure. My qualification, why I even deserve to be on this podcast. I'll shorthand it a little bit. I was I was adopted when I was very young, um, six weeks old, and it was adoption stories were different then. You went to a foster mom in the in-between, and then you went to your family. And I was adopted by a great family, loving to the best of their ability, um, you know, some flaws. But when I look back at my story now, I started feeling that discomfort and anxiety at a very young age. I didn't really want to join in with the other kids. And I couldn't have told you at the time that it was fear or anxiety. I just felt different. I felt like I wasn't one of them. And I grew up on the Upper East Side, going to a prep school, like fancy life, going to Southampton. And I just did not feel like one of the blonde bows and blares (laughs) of the 80s, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, it just wasn't, it wasn't me. I felt fat and brunette and that was not what everyone else looked like. (laughs) Um, so like my first addiction, I really is very clearly food. Um, I started stealing money from my parents at a pretty young age, like eight or nine, uh, to buy food. And I would binge in secret in my room and that fairly quickly morphed into drinking. I'm not one of those people who remembers her first drink. There were always cocktails in my house growing up. And actually, I listened to one of your podcasts, uh, a podcast with someone from London who said very much the same thing. I would run around the parties and finish off all the drinks. And, you know, I was an only child, so I was with the adults a lot and at the parties. So I don't remember my first drink. I do know, and this is more in retrospect than at the time, that it changed everything, right? I went from feeling different from and less than to feeling a part of. I wasn't one of those alcoholics who felt better than that wasn't one of my problems. They describe that a lot in the big book, the grandiosity and the arrogance. I just felt like one of, not better. Than. So, you know, weekend warrior drinking took me through most of high school. I was kind of a chameleon, like I could fit in with any crowd um, from the prep school girls. And I did a lot of, I felt most comfortable. I don't know if you know New York City, but I felt most comfortable hanging out on 135th and Lenox, which is right in the middle of Harlem. In the 90s, it was a little bit different than it is now. And I would drink 40 ounces of oldie and pour a little out from my homies, you know. Um, And you can't see me, but I am very white, very blonde, and I was living on the Upper East Side. But it's where I felt more comfortable. I felt accepted. College was really no different. Uh, Weekend warrior drinking still. Then I found cocaine and the drinking got more and more. You know, binging, all binging. I 
my father died at the end of college. I went to take a job. My boss there was, is an alcoholic and liquid lunches started. (laughs) And so for a few years, daily drinking was really a part of my story. I would drink every lunchtime. I'd get through the lunchtime and then I'd bring home, bring back to the office Mountain Dew and vodka, drink that throughout the day, then drink all night and do it again. And life got really bad. So uh, rather than thinking of, oh, not drinking, I found a boyfriend. I took him hostage and I moved to <laughs> I moved to Glasgow, Scotland for a year because he was from there. Mm-hmm. And I thought that would fix everything. And that didn't fix everything. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I came back. I left him there. I ghosted him. I came back. And, uh, you know, my first night back, I thought it was going to be a fresh start. And I picked up where I'd left off and did all the same shameful things or things that made me feel ashamed, I should say. And, you know, I woke up the next morning with one of those hangovers that was like unbearable. Like my pores were huge and dry sweat. And a few years before that, a shrink had given me, um, I'd been in and out of therapy since I was eight. Uh, A shrink had given me a copy of The Power of Now, and I can never say the author's name, Eckhart Tolle, Tolle. And the copy of Living Sober. And at the time, I'd been like, I don't know what this is for, and put them on my bookshelf. But that morning when I woke up, that was like the first thing my eyes landed on. And so I think sort of theists in AA would call that a God wink or, you know, like a moment. But, you know, circumstance, happenstance, I, I whatever. So I saw them and I was like, oh, my God, I can totally, I can quit drinking. Like, this doesn't have to be my life. And uh I got on the phone. I found the A number. This was when there were still phone books around or at my house. We still had a rotary dial phone. And, uh, and I, in 2000, right. I want to say like my family was old school. My dad was born in 1924. So like oh. a lot of stuff at my house was still from the 60s. So I picked up my red rotary dial phone and I called the number for AA Intergroup in New York. And the woman gave me a meeting at a place called the 79th Street Workshop that day. And I said, no freaking way. Like, I can't move. And I really couldn't. It wasn't even an excuse. Like, I was like, I I had alcohol poisoning for all intents and purposes. Um, But she said there's the same meeting the next day. The workshop in the city is, they have like six or seven meetings a day. It's basically every two hours there's a meeting there up until 10 o'clock at night. So I went the next day, I raised my hand. I said I was an alcoholic. I cried. You know, a, a lovely woman sitting in front of me helped me help me find meetings for the rest of the week. I went to a meeting on Monday. I wanted this, you know. I actually thought getting sober was as chic as <laughs> being, you know, being a drug addict, which sure. my generation it was chic, right? Mm-hmm. The basketball diaries and stuff like mm-hmm. it seemed sexy. It seemed cool and I always liked being the bad girl because that made me cool in my own way. So I didn't fit in with the cool girls, but I was the bad girl. So, so I went to a meeting the next day and I asked for a sponsor and I, and I got in gear and I, like, I went in whole hog, zealot, like big book thumper within a year telling everybody what to do. Meanwhile, I was <laughs> doing it, you know, like I was like, you have to pray. <laughs> I didn't believe anything I was saying, you right. know, I was doing the act as if, act right. as if, and I, I had never been a believer I would have called myself an agnostic, I think, before. I certainly wasn't a militant atheist, but mm-hmm. I just didn't care. You know, I was I was agnostic on the issue of God. Mm-hmm. So I thought I had to change everything the first time I came in. And when I, when I thought of change everything, I thought that meant I had to go from the bleeding heart liberal I was to, you know, a, a conservative. <laughs> I thought, like, so I changed everything. I started, like, only wearing Brooks Brothers. And, <laughs> like, it was, like, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm going to believe in God and I'm going to go to church. And like I did all this stuff and but I stayed really angry and I put down alcohol and I picked up food. And so in those four years, I really didn't do any real changing, any inner growth. Um, And I I blew up to 260 pounds and um, I was eating the way I drank, binge eating every night. And, um, you know, I wasn't sober. I wasn't I was dry, uh, but I wasn't happy. And so it was really easy to go out. So I relapsed after four years. I spent a couple of years out drinking. The drinking changed. You know, it it was as worse as it had been uh, almost immediately. I'm not, period. I'm not someone who can have one drink. 
so it was it was I had figured it out in a way now that I could do like Thursday nights for 72 hours. Right. And then recover the next three days of the week. There were a lot of lies, a lot of of shameful behavior. I was I was badly behaved as a woman, especially um, things that make us most ashamed. And, you know, I don't know. I was just I was so miserable. AA had ruined my drinking because I knew I had a problem. So I would have to drink so much to block it out, block everything out. And, you know, it was just a few years of the same old, same old. Lots of lies, secrets from my boss, from my friends. Uh, I hadn't told the people in AA for a long time that I was drinking again. I just kind of disappeared. And then the night that I, that I, you know, decided not to drink again was not different from any other night. Uh, I, I had been on a like a 48-hour binge, and I missed the baptism of a really good friend's baby. And because I was so coked up and so drunk still that morning that I couldn't go. I couldn't go sit in church and pretend I was normal. And actually, one of my friends forbade me from going. (laughs) Like, you're in no condition, crusty nose. So, So I skipped that, and I lay in bed. And for the first time ever, I really considered killing myself. I had sort of joked about it in my past or like a fleeting thought, but this was like, I can't live this way anymore. My life is unbearable, let alone unmanageable. I was $300,000 in debt, Um, but I couldn't see that. That wasn't available to me yet, the unmanageability, but the unbearability was. I didn't have any mirrors in my house. Um, You know, I couldn't afford cat food sometimes and was making deals with the local pet store. Like, (laughs) you know, like I couldn't live the way I was living. And I was like, okay, I can't do it anymore. But then, you know, a believer again would say, God wink. Instead, uh, but for me, it was just like I had the seed of AA had been planted. Recovery had been planted. So I called a former sober friend and I said, I need help. And that, that to me is the key, right? That's it. Like the minute you allow yourself to be that vulnerable to say like, I can't do this and I can't stop alone. That's it. That's, that's the quote unquote miracle. I need help. So I said, I need help. And he said, sit tight. I have an abuse. You can't take it now because you've been drinking so heavily, but I'll, I'll bring it over tomorrow. So I lived on an abuse and fear for about three months. I didn't want to go back. I didn't want to go back. I went back. I went back. I don't remember my first meeting back. But I went back and um, I was embraced. And this is in New York City. So at the time, it was getting more big book thumpy and more um, more God-centered. But this was a phase in AA that wasn't that bad in New York. So, you know, I came back and I just got into the program in a totally different way. Uh, and I, you know, I wanted to find God, but I didn't pretend I had. And I read as much of the literature about different religions as I could. And I tried meditating and going to church. And, um, you know, I read a lot about Judaism and I just, I couldn't find it. I didn't have the God gene, you know? I I mean, I stomped in Central Park with Druids, right? Like, I was like, (laughs) maybe I'm a Druid. Like, (laughs) (laughs) pray to the fairy of the flower or whatever. So, you know, I just couldn't find it, but that didn't stop me from moving on. I had a sponsor who understood that I didn't have to call it God. And it wasn't a lazy decision. You know, I think a lot of people in the rooms think that like, oh, well, you're just lazy. And it really wasn't. I was desperate for a label. So, you know, and then I did the steps and I did everything else I was told. Just didn't get down on my knees. Um, And I gave myself a pat on the back whenever I did something great. You know, it's it's interesting that people would think that it's lazy. And I think it's quite the contrary, because I've done it both ways. And um, actually, for me, when I realized and accepted that I was an atheist, and I started looking at the program through a secular lens, I started focusing much more on what I actually do, the practical things that I did that kept me sober, rather than any of the belief stuff, which I kind of found irrelevant. And by doing that, you know, I felt like, you know, I'm doing the same thing that anyone else is doing in the program who might believe. It's just that I don't believe that there's some kind of supernatural force that's propelling me through this. And so, I don't know, it it forced me, I think, to stop and ask myself what these things mean to me. And it even actually says to do that in the big book, by the way. It says, ask yourself what these things mean to you. (laughs) And And I did that. And... 
Yeah, unfortunately, I wasn't that well accepted, though, when I started to um, verbalize this new (laughs) outlook on the program. Um, And it was like, I I had a similar experience as you, I guess, that um, I saw some change in Alcoholics Anonymous here locally um, during the time that I've been in the program. And I came in in 1988. And it was like, when I the first group I went to, they were really laid back. They said, "Oh, don't you worry about any higher power. Right. <laughs> All you just go to meetings. Yeah. You know, you'll be fine." Yeah. And I did that, but then I fell into this group that was more into um, somehow replicating the way <laughs> the way it uh, was in the 1930s. Right. I guess they were they were nice guys. It was a men's group. They were nice and everything, but it was like before I knew it, I was I was mouthing the words that I knew they wanted to hear. Right. And I don't know if I really believed it. I was somehow, somehow trying to reconcile it in my mind. And I actually was going through the motions and doing stuff like praying and everything, but I don't know. So yeah. Yeah. So that was my, that was my journey anyway. Well, I I completely, I completely understand that. I, um, I had an easier time in New York City. I came out to Long Island and I, you know, I was an atheist, but, and I didn't feel a need to give voice to it. That often because, you know, we didn't close with the Lord's Prayer in New York City. Like, people closed with the Serenity Prayer. People didn't talk about their religious beliefs ever because it's New York City. Like, it's a bubble. And it really is. And it's a bubble for AA, too. It's getting a little more religious there and Big Book Thumpy, but it's not bad. I came out to Long Island and I joined a new group out here that some friends of mine out here on, on the island were a part of. And it was like a whole new world. Like I, it w- we're 40 miles from the city and it couldn't be more different. And it was so God centric. And I started to give voice to my atheism. People would give me a hard time, but I wanted to let the newcomer in the room know, like, by the way, you don't have to have a supernatural higher power to do this. The, it really can be the group, but they like wouldn't let me speak like they had been asking me to speak prior to that because I'm, I'm a pretty good speaker. And when I started giving voice to my atheism, I, like nobody asked me anymore. And then at a business meeting, they were like, maybe we should ban people from saying they're atheists. And I was like, oh, that's good. You know, like great answer to that quote unquote problem. Like, it's this it's like you said, it's like they want to bring it back to 1939. And I think they might not know a lot about history (laughs) if they want that, you know, like we were, what, 20, not even, no, 13 years since women got the right to vote. (laughs) That's right. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Segregation constitutionally Mm -hmm. was what, not till 1964 was that finally, right, right, a part of the constitution. So that's 25 years later. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah, like this was not a, a great point in in American history. No. So <laughs> why we want to sort of sit there, I don't know. So tell me, how did you um, get tell, what was the story behind getting to the Wilson House? And can we kind of go into that a little bit about about your talk? And 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 also, I'm kind of interested in knowing, do you still if you still have use for the big book today and, and how you deal with it? Well, I have use for the big book um, because I help other women. And people who come into AA, a lot of them come in really excited by the idea of being given assignments and reading, you know, like right, they, need, they, right, crave that. Right. they crave that structure. And I find the women who really want God and religion, I can work with them because I try not to shove my atheism down their throat because I don't like it when people shove their religion down my throat. But we still go through it secularly because I want them to understand that this is a personal, very personal choice they have to make. and and. There's no reason for it to leap out of the page in the book. And I have a devoutly Catholic sponsee, and it has never been an issue. So, you know, I just, I have use for the book because it has some, it makes some fantastic points. But as I go through it with them, I take the best and leave the rest. And you hear a lot of the old timers say, you can't do that, you'll die. Like, that's not true, by the way. You can take the best and leave the rest. Because there's some good stuff in there that that is valid today, certainly. And, and I can talk a little more about that later. But what brought me to the Wilson House was actually this home group out here. It's a big group. It's like you know, 150 people when it's full. And it meets seven days a week. And um, in a lot of ways, it's fabulous. It's got a lot of newcomers and old timers. And it's it's full of energy and life and excitement. 
So in many ways, it's a great group. I was still a member of this group and they asked me, they booked a retreat up at the Wilson House for its members and other people on Long Island. And they asked me to speak and I was terrified because I knew that I was going to say I'm an atheist. And I knew that that was not going to go over all that well. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so I I approached it somewhat carefully, but I didn't um, I didn't shy away from it because I really I thought people need to hear this. They need to know that even if it's not for them atheism, even if they are believers, if they can accept some of these ideas, they can help more people. You know, they can. I said at one point in the talk, I think, like, you're going to sponsor an atheist at some point, you know, don't you want to be able to help her too? So if I can sponsor someone devoutly Catholic, they should be able to sponsor someone who's an atheist and not shove down their throat that they have to believe in a supernatural higher power. And, you know, that's the spirit of actually, in the, in the big book, it actually says to do that, too, I think, in working with yeah. others, it says if you're, if you're a man, because they were right. all men, if, right. if, 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 he's not reli- <laughs> if he's not religious, don't push the God stuff on him right. so much. But if, but if he is, go ahead and go but for I it. But I find that, like, the zealots, the fundamentalists, they also take the best and leave the rest. They pick out from the book what they want. Whereas I feel like I'm looking at the action parts of it. That's really what's happening. Like, I'm just not focusing on the God parts. I'm focusing on the action part. You know, and working with women, I have to change a lot, too. Like, it has to be, for an atheist, it has to be reframed. And for female sponsees, it has to be reframed because they just don't identify with a lot of it. And then, you know, I have men, the men and some of these, yes, they do. I'm like, no, they don't. Like, grandiosity wasn't their problem. Anger and and vehement anger was not their problem. You know, these they're damaged, not defective. No, I'm noticing actually in our home group, and I and our group is is a secular group in Kansas City, but um, we're actually getting a lot more younger people and a lot more women. And you know, the big book to them is just it's just impossible. It's just it's it's laughable. <laughs> it's not anything that's even closely relatable. Right. Um, they have absolutely no interest in it whatsoever. Nope. Why would they? You know? Why would they? It's a book by yeah. men for men. Right, right, in right. Really by white men for white men. I mean, when it gets right yeah. down to it, it's, you know, and I, I can excuse them that. It was 1939 in America, right. right? So, like, these weren't, I can't fault them for being a part of their own time. And, and so having a paradigm of, of that, right? And I can probably give them the benefit that they were a little bit ahead of their time because they do talk about accepting more than just the Episcopalian, you know? <laughs> right. They were trying. Right. They, were, they were really they were trying. an effort. Yeah. 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 And I think that they, they, they honestly thought that using higher power and God as you understood him was somehow opening up, you know, widening the, the gateway, I guess. Thinking. I mean, that story, mm-hmm. which you have, you have, a, you know, a great deal of fantastic history in the forward to the second edition, if you can sort of go through the weeds. And I always recommend like people go on to the internet and Google some of it because there's really Mm. fascinating stuff, even on silkworth.net about these guys and their history. And, you know, it was, it was incredibly forward thinking because it all, it all came to bill through Ebby Thatcher, right. Who was Mm. an Oxford group Mm. member. And that was about as religious as you can get. Yeah. And Ebby just said, look, I can't take how annoying you're being about the higher power thing. Could you just call it whatever you want? Like, let's just yeah. move on. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, he didn't stay sober with his Oxford group, you know, like his four tenants. So that should have given them a, you know, a peek into what didn't work. Um, but yeah, I just, I, you know, I, I guess I see the big book back to the other question is like, it's, it, it's a great foundation, right? It, they mm-hmm. started something real. And they started something remarkable and beautiful in so many ways. And they had a lot of good motives, um, their egos aside, and right. which appear throughout the <laughs> But there were, you know, the motivation was great. And I think the outcome was great if we are willing to change. The institution of AA will, will die, in my opinion, if it does not change with the times. Institutions are dying everywhere now, you know. So, you know, if the if the more conservative people who who love institutions <laughs> want this to survive, they're going to have to move it along. But I don't foresee a rewrite of the big book anytime soon. No, I don't yeah. either. 
and I don't know if it should actually be rewritten, but but what I would like to see is I'd like to see the big book put in some historical context as a foundational document um, in its time. That is perfectly but, put. That is perfectly yeah. put. Yeah. Yeah. But let's have something new now. Let's have let's have let's us write our own program in our own language for the 21st century and beyond. Right. You know, right? Old Testament, uh, New why, Testament. <laughs> yeah. Why can't we do that? You know, it's like it just blows my mind. Yeah. <laughs> totally. I mean, and and two, it's like that would be like a big seller. Imagine the press. AA comes out with a new book for the 21st century. I think it would be huge. It, talk about getting you know, more people in. I mean, that yeah. would bring people in in floods. And some of them would love the old big book. And some of them would identify yeah. and use it. You yeah. know, it would be one of the important pieces of literature to read along with living sober. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would love to be able to reach some of these younger people in a way just so that they can understand the history. Because, see, we have people that come to our group. And they've never been to any other AA meeting. They wouldn't want to go right. to an AA meeting where, where there's prayer. Right. They just have nothing to do with it. So therefore, they haven't read the big book. If they've ever heard little snippets of it, it's not interesting. Um, it's not. <laughs> they, you know, we're just kind of getting into the steps now right. with, with them because I didn't think they wanted to do the steps, honestly. Um, they were like doing fine without steps, right. you know? And I thought, okay, well. Right. But, but then they said, oh, yeah, we, we are interested in, in these. I said, okay, well. So we're trying trying to get through those. Um, you know, here and there we're reading a, a, um, different like secular literature in our meetings. Right. But it would be nice to be able to, in a way, say, okay, you know, I'm I'm almost afraid of 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 some some aspects of the program because I I don't want it to hurt people but it's like just put this in context from where it was and understand how we how our secular group came from all of this Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Because we're connected to that. Right. We we have a connection to that past. We have we don't have a program but for the past, mm-hmm. right? There's That's there's right. no there there if we don't connect right. to it. Um, we need it. It's our foundation. Just like, just like sobriety is a foundation for life. It's not all of life. Right. right. And and these are our beginnings. That's important. Yeah. But just like a, a changing democratic Republic, here's hoping it changes again. Um, <laughs> you know, we need, we need to change. We need amendments. We need to, to move right. forward. So, what what reminded me of of my early times as an atheist when I was listening to your talk is because you were really kind of talking about some of the chapters of the big book that I was really trying to understand too as an atheist. Mm-hmm. And basically, what I did the very the first time I went through this, it was it was really kind of a difficult time to be honest with you. I I was I was just I put all my beliefs on the table. Everything was up for debate. You know, I I, I would throw out any old ideas, bring in new ideas, and I took that big book out. And I started reading it, and I started um, crossing out all the God stuff. <laughs> I did that too. And <laughs> yeah, and when you do that, you—it's really interesting because you'll read a paragraph, and it talks about something that's perfectly sensible and practical, mm-hmm. and then the last sentence or two talks about how oh, it's so wonderful, it brings us closer to God, right. and we're you know all this stuff. But you cross that all that godly stuff out, and you're left there with that practical stuff. Really? And I did that. I thought, well, this is really, this is really interesting. You know, this, this is what I, this is what I've always done. Right. You know, just, just throw out the, the belief part. Absolutely. I mean, I think AA is at its core really good, basic cognitive behavioral therapy, changing a bad habit, right, replacing it with a new habit, and it's available to people who would never otherwise go to therapy. Um, be it. There's a stigma, they don't think they need it, whatever it is, like this helps you retrain your brain. So if you take the spiritual aspect out of it, it really is like a fantastic cognitive behavioral therapy, in my opinion. That's sort of the base of it. Yeah, understanding your th- your thoughts and actions and somehow changing right. them. Right, Yeah. And the, I mean, all the yeah. steps speak to that. So you can kind of reword them without changing them entirely to... to to do that, to really do a cognitive behavioral, uh, cognitive behavioral work. Yeah. 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 That kind of, that kind of makes sense right. to me. Not a hundred dollars an hour. You know, you get it free. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I mean, unless your sponsor is kind of a moron. Mm. So during your talk, you were kind of going through the first three steps yep. and you want to kind of talk about those first three steps a little bit, how you see them. Yeah. Um, I absolutely do. I'm actually just looking at my notes a little bit to see, um, I'm going to, 
start by looking a little bit at there is a solution um, to to bring that to bring us into step one because I think I think that that the title of this chapter may be the best part of it right there is a solution how exciting like I don't have yes. to live this way anymore I don't have right. to I don't have to I can put the mirrors back up in my house I love that and I got excited and. In the first paragraph of that, I felt like, okay, I can do this because there exists among us a fellowship, a friendliness, an understanding, which is indescribably wonderful. And I, I believe that. So yeah, when I came in, I came in on step one, I think as many people do, I had admitted I was powerless over alcohol, meaning I knew that I would never be able to have just one drink. I wasn't someone who could take one and then go home, get a good night's sleep and show up for someone tomorrow. Uh, I did not, it was not easy for me to see unmanageability in my life, as I said earlier. So my life had become unbearable and that's what I needed to change. So step one became about, I'm powerless over alcohol. All I need to do to stop the cycle is not take one drink. And that should be relatively easy (laughs) considering my life is unbearable. I was pretty invested in the lies I told myself. So that was, I think, why the unmanageability was difficult for me. So I often ask my sponsees, you know, and maybe their lives don't look unmanageable. Maybe they have jobs. Maybe it's like I did. I had a job. Maybe it's incredibly hard to identify an emotional life as in an unmanageable life. But when I ask them to reframe that idea and look at it as unbearable, living with shame, you know, living with guilt, living with remorse, living as a liar, if you can see it as unbearable, then you might have a, a chance, right? You might be able to sort of grasp the first step. We'll say I think most people come in on the first step, right? We've admitted. We've said we need help. I can't do this alone. So we're sort of moving pretty quickly into step two, in my opinion. And the way I think of step two is like I walked into a room where a lot of people say they once felt the way I did, and now they claim to feel better. <laughs> and are they all lying? Like, (laughs) are they all just telling me that because they think I need to hear it? I want like, or are they all genuinely not drinking to start? I hate happy, joyous and free because life isn't happy, joyous and free. There are moments of great joy. There are moments of happiness and there are moments of incredible pain. You know, I am free all the time, but I am not happy and joyous all the time. You know, right. Um, I'm free from the constraints of addiction, but that's. That's it. They're no really. I don't like when people promise happy, joyous, and free. But so I chose to believe when I came into that room for the first time, even when I pretended to have God, but more so the second time, I was going to believe these women who hugged mm-hmm. me, even when I didn't want to be hugged. I'm not a very touchy person, <laughs> but who said, like, it'll be okay. And you don't have to feel this way again. We promise. And there's a way through this. And that's a leap of faith, right? It's not a leap of faith in something supernatural. It's it's a leap of faith. Like, oh, okay, I believe you. I believe the words that are coming out of your mouth. <laughs> and that's all step two is to me, right? The power greater than me is that I alone am unable to do this. But with other people who have the same problem, together we can, right? That's That's powerful. That's how I see it too. You know, in the big book, when I was kind of going through the chapter to the agnostic, I I had to I rewrote the entire chapter. I had to just rewrite it completely. Well, we basically, but, say ignore that. <laughs> <laughs> but the one thing I know most of it is BS. Yeah. But one thing I did find in there, this is what I drew, drew from that, is that um, I resisted asking for help for whatever reason for for most of my life, and especially when it came to my drinking, I just resisted asking sure. for help. And so for me, that getting to that point where I, I, I came to understand that I could be helped and that there was hope for me, mm-hmm. that was a big turning point for me was just asking for help, right. you know, right. and not, not, not just trying to make it on my own anymore. That's a huge, huge thing. It's, it's, that's a reality that I think for most of us, we were always playing a part. You know, they talk about that in the big book. They talk about it in a way that isn't identifiable to everybody because they talk about the director and so on. And that's not all of us, but uh, we're not all controlling. Many of us were people pleasers, right. you know, and like anything you <laughs> right, say, I'll right. do. Like, <laughs> I don't know what to do with anything ever. I'm conflict averse and terrified all the time. So 
but they that is a point there, right? Like we wear a mask for most of our lives, whatever yeah. that mask may be. Um, and for most of us, it, yes, it is very difficult, I think, to take it off and to say, this isn't me. I need help finding me, you know? So, um, so yeah, step two is in big part, the asking for help and, and, uh, and then relying on the, on the women or men around you, um, and believing in them. Um, that brings us to step three, I think. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and a lot of people, there's a lot of atheists who say this step is impossible. No, no <laughs> totally not impossible. We've just like reviewed it in step two, right? Okay, fine. Maybe this is my step three. Okay, fine. Maybe I'm being naive, but I'm going to believe them for now. Maybe I'll even take a few of their suggestions and see if they're liars. What's the harm? Right? That's literally how I think about it. Like, what's the big deal? It like, they have that stupid saying that I don't love, like, give it 90 days, we'll refund your misery if you're not, like, yeah, but that's right. So I let myself be naive. The worst that can happen is this doesn't work. Okay. Right. You know, <laughs> I've lived through way worse at this point. So. <laughs> right. Right? So, like, I'm just, I'm, there you go. I'm giving over my alcoholism to you. That's mm -hmm. it. I mean, I think it's as simple yeah. as that, really. I think so, yeah. too. I think so too. It's like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try to control this anymore. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna decide to you know go go some other right. route. And if you say that this works for you, I'm gonna give it. I'm a gonna shot. give it a shot. I don't like that. There's nothing supernatural about that, right? I'm I'm listening to a bunch of other people who've done this for longer and who might know what they're talking about because wisdom unfiltered through experience does not become a part of the moral fiber, right? So we can get all the things and read all the books and learn about God. But if we don't experience it, what have we got really to give? Right? Yeah. yeah. Isn't it interesting that those first three steps basically are just setting the stage there? And, and I think to a large extent, they are, they are, they are things that happen to us that maybe we might later recognize happen right. to us. I mean, we get to that point where I've got a problem. I think that there's some hope for right. me. I think I'm going to go try this, right. you know, and that's basically what's happening to us. And that's the first right. three We're steps. We're just in it. We're already in it. And and I think, yeah. um, especially for atheists or agnostics or, you know, humanists, um, mm -hmm. they, they, they let this stop them from moving forward. And in my opinion, steps four and five, and then eight, and nine, six and seven, two, if you reframe them mm -hmm. secularly, mm -hmm. are really important. Mm -hmm. They're important steps to changing the way you think, changing your mm -hmm. paradigm, changing the way mm -hmm. you view others and yourself, they can be incredibly helpful to building self-esteem mm -hmm. and self-confidence. I think yeah. so. I think so. And I kind of think that's what they're about, especially, you know, it's, it's really interesting, too. I've been talking a lot about step six and seven with some of my atheist yeah. friends here. And, and a lot of people, you know, it's a lot of people think well, that's crazy. But you know what? Um, Steps six and seven are all about character building and changing and recognizing that there's that I need to continually improve and work on myself. That's how I see those uh, those steps. Absolutely. Like I've just spent step five talking to another human being. And that's important because my own head is a little nutty. Um, I'm medicated now. <laughs> yeah. Well medicated. Zoloft may have saved my life too. Um, but you know, I, I don't have always the best thoughts. So I've, I've, someone else has helped me identify some negative patterns and maybe some, um, I like to call them damages, as I said earlier, not defects because they mm -hmm. were born of necessity, right? These, these defects right, yeah. were born of necessity. So they protected me for a long time, just like booze helped me get through the anxiety. And it's yeah. just, they're, they're now a hindrance where once they were a help. That is so interesting. I read about, I can't remember what book it was when they were talking about character defects. And they also looked at it that way as like coping mechanisms. Oh, yeah. As, as what we use to somehow survive. Absolutely. I, it was my first sponsor, actually, who who told me that um, before I relapsed. And she she said, and she was someone who had had to reframe it for women. So this has been especially important with women because a lot of them come in and they can't even identify resentment. And they're not defective. They have had to use these things to protect themselves for whatever reason. Um, I, something happened, uh, usually, that caused them to create this defense mechanism. And so it's just that now they don't need it anymore. 
So, yeah. So I think, I think that's really important that we do it with another person so we can see that. Yeah. And then six, six is really, okay, I've got this list of, of damages, this list of, of sort of maybe useless things. Can I get rid of any of them? Am I willing to get rid of any of them yet? That's it. And I, I say, choose one, choose one that you can do today. Don't worry about the rest of the list. Like, don't worry about anything else, small achievable goals. That's the only route to success, right? So let's pick one and work on that. And then you're step seven. And so you can do this for a long time. But I think it's important to be firmly rooted in those steps. So then it just becomes about identifying when you're using that defense mechanism, right? Like you see it coming. (laughs) Oh boy, I just got defensive. And you start to be able to arrest it in the middle of of the process. I can maybe stop it even before I start. But if not, I can stop it mid Mid defect, mid defensive, whatever it is, and I can pull back. And maybe later, when this is all by rote, when this has become a natural part of me, maybe then um, I'll be able to apologize to people if it comes up. You know, <laughs> it's all you know. And that step seven to me was all, was all about just persistence, being persistent in wanting to develop myself as a as a human being. You know, and um, having ups and downs, I guess, as I go along. Um, those steps do mean a lot to me. Um, and I even learned a lot from the 12 and 12. I, I have to, I have to throw out a lot of stuff, but I learned a lot in there. <laughs> but what I find really interesting though, about those, those two particular steps is that I think, I, I think in a way that we as secular people almost get more out of them when we think about them than someone who thinks that God is doing it oh, yeah. all. Cause I swear to God, I've been to so many meetings where they talk about those steps and all I hear the believers say is, well, God hasn't taken my defects right. away. Nope. I'm not, I still have them. God, God hasn't taken so away. So I would say you know? that means you're not taking any action, right? Like, yeah. Cause they don't, they're not thinking that they have to do right, something. Right. So this is where I think like, you know, the Pope said a couple of years ago, um, you pray for the hungry, then you feed them. That's how prayer works, mm, right? Good. And yeah. that is perfect. So a believer or not, like the action has to be there. You have to take the action to change. There is nothing, there is no miracle. It will not be changed magically. Even if you believe in God, you've got to do the work. Yeah. And they used to even say that. I, I remember they used to say, I don't hear it anymore. Of course, I don't go to regular <laughs> meetings anymore. But they used to, they used to say, Pray for potatoes, but get out of right. hoe. They, <laughs> they like don't that. say that in yeah. New York. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> we're not like, we're not It's a Midwestern thing, I guess. Maybe <laughs> upstate, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, that's exactly right. Like it's, and the book taught action, action, and more action. And then a lot of people yeah. just sit there and waiting for God to lift it. Well, isn't that nice for you? Because, you know, <laughs> what? Like how, do, I don't, I, that's not a thing. You know, it's not going to be magically lifted from you. And this is so six and seven to me are sort of the keys to the cognitive behavioral part, because you're you're looking at things a little more objectively as they come into your head. Right. So the mean the mean thing that you're saying to yourself or you're thinking of saying to someone else. Right. If that's your quote unquote defect, if you get nasty when you feel cornered or angry as the thought comes in, you can stop it. You can't always stop the first thought, but you can stop what you do afterwards, right? And a big part for me was the script in my head about myself, like the self-loathing script, the hatred script. And I had to notice that when it came up and stop it, right? And then I had to pat myself on the back. So when the you're fat and disgusting came into my head, I had to say, no, that's not right. You're very attractive. You're doing really well. Pat on the back to you. The best way to change a habit is to reinforce it by giving yourself a pat on the back. God isn't gonna, you know, (laughs) like even if you believe you're going to need to give yourself the credit, you're doing a lot. I'm actually looking at we agnostics right now. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy, please God help me gouge my eyes out. If they if they could rewrite it, it would be pretty cool because um, the when I rewrote it, I I looked at it as at the time I was trying to build a bridge and I was trying to write it as um, whether you believe or not that and I wrote it as an atheist 
to people who might believe. And, and I was trying to say where we have in common. I, and I can't remember how I word it, but, you know, I had said something that, you know, I have respect for you and your way and your belief and everything, but this, you know, right, whatever. It's not mine. <laughs> but, yeah, they should have written it that way. It should have been written that, hey, it doesn't really matter if you're a total atheist or a, or a, a believer, we, c- we can still find some common ground and, and find a way through totally. this. Um, it's too bad they wrote a chapter to the agnostic in a way that oh. they were truly trying to convert. Not only convert, it's not only, it's not only, yeah, proselytizing or something. It's, yeah. it's written not to an agnostic, right? It's written to no. a militant atheist, <laughs> like right, a closed-minded right, right, militant atheist. Like I don't, right. right? Agnostic means I don't know. Like I can be agnostic right, yeah. on on Trump. I'm not, but I could be, right? Right, right, right. right. <laughs> I could be agnostic on the shirt my husband's going to wear tomorrow. Um, so agnostic just means I don't know. I'm on the fence. I don't see proof, but I might believe this is not written to agnostics. Like, this is written to angry atheists. And most atheists I know are not angry. They're only angry when someone tries to shove their beliefs down their throat, right? When yeah, fundamentalists come right. at them. Right. Normal religious people don't make me angry, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of ridiculous to when they when they do look at atheists that way, but unfortunately, that uh made its way throughout um the fellowship too because I as a as a closet atheist, <laughs> I'd be sitting and I'd be listening to people say, "Oh, those atheists are unhappy and terrible and all this stuff." And I've never known a happy atheist. I'm <laughs> Jesus. Really? Cuz yeah. I, I shouldn't compare myself to others. I know that that's like one of our <laughs> never do But when I look at my life and I look at where I am spiritually, as they say, and Mm -hmm. remembering that one of the definitions of spiritual is not supernatural, it's of the mind Mm. and the intellect, right? So they're Mm. they're not all definitions of some corporeal thing, right? It's, Mm -hmm. I am so content, right? Like I am genuinely content with my life. I'm not overjoyed. I'm not manic. I'm not depressed. Um, I had a friend who used to say, I aim to live in the four to six, right? Between the one and the 10. And I'm pretty firmly rooted in the five, six. And I can't say the same of the people who are waiting for God to remove their defects of character. Because <laughs> I, my goal isn't just to be a better person for myself, which I really want to be because it feels good. It is to be a better citizen of the world, Right. And if I'm not constantly working on myself, like they say, putting the oxygen mask on myself first, how can I be a better friend, a better daughter, a better wife, a better worker? Right. If I'm just waiting for someone else to remove these problems, then I'm not. And it seems like you're doing that. It seems like you are a better citizen of the world. I mean, I've listened to like some of your talks that you and your husband have gone yes. out and speaking like at treatment mm-hmm. centers and so forth. So is that like a is that an important part of your recovery today to do that kind Cute. of work? Huge, because I'm not um, a meeting maker at the moment, because I don't I don't see the point for me right now. It makes me angrier. And uh, giving voice to that anger, in fact, creates conflict. And I'm not trying to convert the fundamentalists and the zealots. They're not listening. So the conflict is basically pointless. So I and I don't want it in my life. My life doesn't have room for that anymore. You know, it's uncomfortable in a way that I don't need to be uncomfortable. I'm already uncomfortable enough trying to work on, you know, not being defensive. Um, <laughs> so, um, so I love, I love speaking. I love it. And, um, I love when people come up to me afterwards and ask for my number because I, I know that they identified with something I said, and I love sponsoring. So a lot of people, I don't stay anonymous at all. And I never have throughout my life, I've always been really open about my mental problems and, you know, everything, the shameful behavior. I talk really openly about all of that because someone's got to, and I understand that other people don't want to. I get that. So I'm really open. And a lot of people, like I used to be really open on Facebook, would would write to me privately and say, what are you doing? And I say, no, I used AA. And one of them was an atheist. He's like, but, but, but. And I said, go and then come talk to me afterwards and we'll talk about it from another perspective. But that's it. Step 12 is it for me, right? Like one through 11 gave me a a good foundation, but giving back, helping others, be it with alcoholism or anything else, food addiction, you know, food restriction, anorexia, like 
it's so applicable applicable in so many ways. Well, you're really talented at it, and so is your Aww. husband. I just, I really enjoy <laughs> everything that you guys yeah, do. Yeah, he's great. He's <laughs> so. great. He's more spiritual than I am, but and and we're fine with that. You know, he's he's a believer, but not a not a missionary. You know, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. We have a yeah. lot of fun. We're a good team, and we have a a good rapport. We can make fun of each other. We both have a good sense of humor. Uh-huh. <laughs> Well, I'm so glad that I got to know you and I got to have this conversation. I loved it. And, thank you so much. And thank you for visiting AA Beyond Belief. Please keep Absolutely. doing that. And uh, maybe come back on another podcast I sometime. Love it. Invite I can... me anytime. We can, we can go through okay. we agnostics line by line. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, people actually like it. Um, there, There's something you said that I think is very true. People like structure, you know, especially when they're first yeah. starting. Um, they want, you know, just, just tell me what right. to do. I just, just show me what to do, you know, and having some structure is nice. Totally right. And I find that, yes. So I like to go through it with them until they feel a little steadier and then, you know, kind of takes off on their own, but I absolutely love going through it. And, and in fact, you've inspired me. I'm, I think I'm going to do a limited series podcast of my own talking about a lot of this stuff, just going through the book and the, and the passages that are especially difficult for, for secular. Oh, that would be so and, yeah, cool. I would I love will that. send it your way. Once I get going, it makes me a little nervous. But oh, we'll see what awesome. we can do. <laughs> oh, that, that would be really yeah. good. And you know, it'd be quite popular. People are really interested yeah. in that. People um, are looking for, they're like, you know, there's like, I don't really believe in God, but I do kind of, I am interested in AA. It seems to be everywhere. Is there any way I can understand this as, as a non-believer? And we need this so much right now. I mean, with, with the Viet epidemic and heroin use, like a, we can't afford to lose. It doesn't work for everybody, but it works for enough people. You know, if we want to save our, like our species, <laughs> Exactly. It does help a lot. It does help. That human connection, I, I see it when I leave my meeting, and it just warms my heart to see these people becoming friends and supporting each other and helping each other. And So pay attention to the preamble. That's a big suggestion. That is the program in a nutshell. That's all you really have to know. Well, again, thank you very much. I appreciate it. So nice talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great talking to you. Wow, that stuff really impresses me. I tell you, um, shortly after we recorded this podcast, um, Steph went and created the uh, limited series podcast that she was talking about. And uh, those podcast episodes are posted on her YouTube channel. You can find her on YouTube at Steph Roberts. That's S-T-E-P-H Roberts. And uh, the name of the podcast is Away. And I tell you what, they are excellent and definitely worth your time to listen. So thanks again, everybody. I'll be back again next week with another great episode.